Hey, hi everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond Eight Figures. This is AJ, the journeyman entrepreneur with another Beyond Eight Figure episode for you. On the show, we talk with top entrepreneurs about the realities of building an eight-figure business, what success really means to them, and hear from them about some of their winning strategies and tactics. Tune in to each episode to learn how to grow your business beyond 10 million, and more importantly, create your own personal legacy. Hey, hello everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond Eight Figures. This is AJ, the journeyman entrepreneur of another Beyond Eight Figures episode for you. Let's get started. Today's episode will really dive into how the growth and entrepreneur achieves from using consistent efforts from each of their opportunities will build on even greater future opportunities. This will make more sense during the episode. Our guest today is nothing short of an entrepreneurial miracle. At the ripe age of 21, he founded Aster and Black, which quickly became the fastest growing custom clothing company in the U.S. He's been named an Entrepreneur of the Year, and he's been among Inc.'s 30 under 30. He's built and invested in a number of companies, including men's clothing, healthy food delivery, and even a futuristic robotic sous vide cooking machine. He's been a previous guest on Beyond Eight Figures. And today he's returning to share his recent experience in selling yet another company. Let's all give a warm welcome to David Schottenstein. So I started a uh, sunglasses and glasses company called Prevay Revo uh, with some Hollywood celebrity partners, Jamie Foxx, Haley Steinfeld, and some others back in 2017. And we really, uh, over the last couple of years, we really built up a real name for ourselves in terms of quality, in terms of brand, and very, very aggressive price point, kind of undercutting everybody else in the market. And we really did something unique in that we were able to create an actual brand uh, and real brand affinity with the customer base, even though the price point was, you know, 30 bucks for a pair of sunglasses, which typically... $30 for a pair of sunglasses means junk. And obviously in this, in this case, it, it really, it meant quality, it meant style. And it meant, you know, if you're buying them and you're wearing them, you're, you're financially savvy because you're avoiding getting ripped off and spending two, 300 bucks for a pair of sunglasses that's made exactly the same way. So fast forward a couple of years, we did that, uh, did a great job of it, made sure that we were getting lots of attention, lots of organic press. And we were approached by a group called Safalo out of Italy, big eyewear conglomerate, great, great group over there. And they approached us and they said, we love what you guys are doing and we'd love to make you part of the Safalo family. So one thing led to another and that was that. Being bought up by them, it seems you guys created the company perfectly to get acquired by that type of company because there is so few players in there that make any real traction to actually become a real player. They had to come and get you. That's right. I think if we built something disruptive and typically Tafalo has been around for 130 plus years. So you talk about, you know, you have companies like that they're not creating new companies within Safalo. They're not, you know, that's not their model. Their model is they've been established, they've been around forever. And when they see a trend or they see something new and exciting um, in the marketplace, you know, that they feel is disruptive and that they feel they can, you know, hey, you've gotten it, you've gotten it to the 50 yard line 
we want to take it further, take it to the end zone, they kind of jump in and make an acquisition. And that's, that's pretty typical just about any industry. If you go into any industry and you are disruptive and you make enough noise, the older, more established guys will typically come in and try and you know, scoop you up. Did you, I, I know Michael's going to want to pull us back, but one of the things I felt really interested in diving through that was because of your partnerships with the celebrities, they weren't just spokespeople. They were actual partners in the company. And there is this whole thing of, you know, almost audience-led businesses. Did you, do you see that as being part of your disruption? Or, you know, what really did you see as that disrupting factor for you guys? I think the disruption that's happening across a number of industries, you know, and I, I would almost say this is a trend and it's a trend that's not going to go away is consumers are so much so much better informed nowadays because of the amount of information that is available to people you know it's at, at our fingertips it's it's sitting there on you know you, you go on to google and you or you look at even your instagram or facebook feed there's so much uh, there's so much information in terms of how things are made where mm-hmm. things come from consumers are much more savvy in terms of price and you know, it's, it's a lot harder to convince a consumer nowadays that, oh, you should spend $200 on a pair of sunglasses or you should spend $250 on a pair of prescription glasses because the consumers now know that the markups are ridiculous in that industry. And so when consumers become better informed and they become more savvy, price and value becomes much more important to them. And that's what, that's what I think is happening. What I think is happening in every industry, uh, not just this industry, is that Disruptive players are coming in with really high quality products at a much more aggressive, lower price point than what than what has been traditional, let's say in that industry, whatever industry. And the consumers are now, because they're better informed, they are willing to make a switch. And perhaps they were buying, you know, X for 20 years or 30 years, but now that they know that Y is made the exact same way with the exact same uh, materials or ingredients, but it's a quarter of the price, you know, hey, I'm willing to, I'm willing to switch and, and, and shift my brand allegiance, you know, my brand loyalty over to something else because clearly this is a better value. And I think that's happening, you know, it's widespread and across many industries. So very cool. it seems like that's really the force and the wave that you've ridden now to two successful exits. Was that intentional? Did you really design this second go to kind of be a modern day remake of the original? I mean, to an extent, yeah. The design, the thought process was we want to create, we want to create, high, you know, a high quality product. And we want, to, we want to create a product and bring a product and an experience to the market that previously consumers have had to, had to, have had to spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on, or you know, it previously was only accessible to a select few because of the prohibitive price point. And that's what I did with my first go around with the custom suit company. It was, you know, you could only buy a custom suit if you were willing to spend a thousand plus dollars. And back when I started that company in 2004, there was not a lot of people willing to spend a thousand dollars plus on a suit. Uh, so when we came in offering that same experience, the same convenience, the same quality for, uh, you know, $400, you know, $500, suddenly the market, you know, when you drop your price point, when you cut that price point in half, it doesn't just double your market size. It exponentially increases, right? That's the way it works with any, anytime you drop price, your market size, your, you know, your target audience 
exponential increases. And that's what we did with the first company. And that's what I did with the second company as well. When you drop your sunglasses price point from, let's just say from $100 down to $30, your market size is so, I mean, I would have to say it's probably literally 100 times greater in terms of market size, maybe even more. And I think to AJ's point about going audience first, if I remember right, with the custom suits, NFL players were a big part of your initial market. That's right. Was finding and choosing celebrity partners a big part of the growth planning this time around? It was, but more so from the branding perspective, because, you know, one of the things when you're coming out with a product that's $30 that typically costs $100 plus, people are going to be suspicious and they're going to question the quality and they're going to question the style. So having established voices and, and brand ambassadors and people that were partners who could really tell that, help us tell that story and reach that, you know, uh, reach a wider audience and convince the consumer that, Hey, this is really a quality product. You're not sacrificing anything. You're just saving a bunch of money when you buy this product. That was really important. So the celebrity partners were a very important piece of that. Interesting. And one of the big things that's always fascinated me is luxury branding. And it seems like you've really mastered that luxury brand at a price that everyone can find palatable. I, I wouldn't say I've mastered it. I'm, I'm, I'm getting better and better at it. Let's put it that way. It's your process. You it's are my building process. your way. Your way. Yes. <laughs> so when you come back on as a billionaire, then you'll have mastered it. That, that I can say maybe I've gotten closer to mastering it. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> There'll be a whole nother layer on top of that. There always is the fun of this game. So I guess the question I've got there is really, you understand the branding and the name and the positioning. Does that cross over throughout cultures? Or have you found that a lot of this really sticks to the American identity? No, it crosses over to cultures for sure. In today's today's day and age, with given how connected people are, we live in a world where across the ocean isn't so far away anymore. So it, it definitely crosses over, and and we you know we've had a lot of success, thank God, in a lot of different markets. So we we did very well here in the U.S. We have a huge presence in in the Middle East and the United Arab Emirates and other places. Uh, we have a big presence in Europe. So definitely crosses into various cultures. Yeah. I live in Spain. I'm actually in southern Spain on the Costa del Sol. And I've seen them, you know, Marbella. I've seen them in Malaga. So it is really, you know, it was like, wait, I know this brand when I saw you were coming up. Now, you talk about getting better at this branding. Was this just an opportunity that came along? Or was this like a building block that you said, you know what, I have this. One of the things I'm always fascinated is, as entrepreneurs, yeah, they talk about it, repeat entrepreneurs, but in reality, most folks I know who call themselves this insane thing are just constantly failing and then have, you know, some people like you have bigger successes, but most of us have like lots of little failures that kind of disappear that no one ever hears about. And then a few things that do really well. Was this a deliberate Thing or an opportunity that came your way? It was an opportunity that came my way uh, through Jamie Foxx. So Jamie actually brought this to me. Jamie really was this, had the idea. And um, I would say that 
after that, it kind of became like he, he, he had the idea and then I executed. Uh, so it was something that, you know, that an idea that was brought to me and then I kind of took it from there. So your journey as an entrepreneur has put you in a position where you could then take on something like this. That's right. Exactly. My journey as an entrepreneur, I think, equipped me with what I needed to actually take his idea and turn it into a reality and into a, a viable company and business. Yeah. Finding that fascinating. Yeah. You know, when I talk to people like you, it is that skill set you build and it's never easier, but it becomes a little bit more understandable, I think. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. What was the hardest thing in each one of your past four businesses? And how did it change from each business to business? Quality was, was the common hurdle in the fashion-related business. Um, no question. Just how do I get, how do I keep the quality at a high level but but yeah, at the same time, keep the price point down at a level that I can still offer this product at a significantly reduced price from what people are typically used to. And in the non-fashion business, which was the legal billing software I started called Viewable, the challenge was, you know, we we're essentially selling a product to law firms that law firms didn't want. So the challenge is essentially, how do you sell a product to someone who specifically does not want that type of product. And you almost have to, it's like giving a child medicine, which isn't never, I don't know if you guys have kids, but yes. forcing, a little, <laughs> forcing a little kid to take medicine is not a fun process. And it was kind of similar to that. Do you see comparisons between developing a luxury brand that people want to buy and convincing those lawyers that they have to take their medicine? Not at all. <laughs> couldn't be, could not be more different. One situation you're surprising and delighting the customer, and the other situation, you know, you have a bunch of attorneys who have zero interest in providing that level of transparency to their clients for obvious reasons. You're somehow convincing them not only, not only are they going to do it, but they're going to pay for it too. You know, not a, not a fun process, and, and not there's no surprise and delight aspect in that business. So would you start a legal software company again? I, I would never go into a business like that again. That was, that business was just, it was a good idea. It was something that stemmed from personal experience uh, of, you know, having to deal with lawyers and being really surprised with my bill. Uh, but, but no, I would never go into that business like that again. Just not for me. You sold it, correct? Cause I. Correct. Correct. We yeah. sold it. Very good. So was that a relationship? Because I noticed, yeah, in reading on it, it was with a legal partner, or was that something you decided because, you know, I've had that fun of what the F is this bill? Who the hell is this person? <laughs> what kind of led to that? Yeah, that was just when I had my first exit and I had to and I had to pay the legal bill. I was told by the attorneys representing us that the bill would be X and then the bill came in and was two times two times that. And, uh, I was like, yeah, I was like, guys, this is, this is crazy. And, you know, they, they were like, look, we have a legitimate reason for why this is so expensive. And my take on it was, you know, this is not a legitimate reason. And I realized there was just a disconnect between, you know, their process and my expectations and their billing cycle and managing my expectations. And I, I figured that, Hey, if I can kind of bridge the gap there, Maybe customers would really appreciate it, et cetera, et cetera. And the customers appreciated it. The lawyers did not. 
given you know, your experience across this and the different things, are you planning on staying with the company long-term or do you have new ideas that are set for the future? So I am going to stay with the company for a few years for sure. Give them my best in terms of trying to help them execute on the you know, continued growth vision. At the same time, of course, I'm going to you know, look at new ideas and I wouldn't get involved with something in a capacity that would really pull me away from uh, Prevera Bo for the time being, but uh, definitely as a strategic investor, you know, that, that type of thing. Maybe coming back, we, we've touched on some trends, but is there anything, you know, from a business point, because if you're talking about being an investor, is there anything you're seeing now that is very interesting to you, a big trend in that opportunity in the space for businesses? I wouldn't say there's a specific trend that I, you know, like that I see as a huge opportunity. I think the big, the, the, the opportunity that I see is again, utilizing the easy access you now have to consumers through social media, through all these various platforms. I do think it creates the ability that perhaps previously wasn't as readily accessible to people to sell a product, a disruptive product, or to tell a disruptive story, you know, without spending nearly as much money to do so. You know, previously, if you wanted to tell a disruptive story to a, to the consumer, you know, maybe you have to get tele, you know, you have to do TV advertising, which is a fortune. Or nowadays, you can really tell that story very effectively through social media for a lot less money. And you have much easier time spreading the word, even through things like WhatsApp. I mean, if you create a great video that people want to forward to their friends, that, you know, that thing starts to get forwarded around on WhatsApp. Next thing you know, everybody knows about the fact that your product or your service is, is available and is available for a fraction of the price or, you know, is very disruptive. Maybe it's not a fraction of the price. Maybe it's just a different process that's very disruptive that's outside of what the way things have been traditionally done. So I just think we're going to keep seeing more and more of that. We'll keep seeing companies come out with products and services that are different than what people are accustomed to and, and they get their word out you know super fast very quickly so that the time it takes for for that disruption to occur that, that time that runway is shortened yeah actually that comes up a good one because this is part of how michael and i started talking i i agree completely that compression of the cost time talent all that it's getting easier and easier, you know, compared to like my first company in the mid nineties and then so on as I've gone through the years. But there's a lot of good ideas that I know can earn margin and can turn profitability, but won't scale. How mm-hmm. do you look for opportunities? Well, a lot of it is about the people. Yeah. And, and so you can, you can have a great idea, but if the person who is supposed to be delivering on that idea isn't rock solid, then the idea doesn't mean a whole lot. So I would say that that's a big piece of it. Obviously, the idea needs to make sense. I'm not going to get behind something if the idea is a waste of time. But if, if someone comes to me with a great idea, but I look at that person and I don't think that person has the grit or the persistence to really see it through, then I'm not going to get involved with it. So oftentimes, I'll get involved. I'll give you an example. Uh, there's a company called Swimply. They've been in the press nonstop. You know, they, it's like the Airbnb for swimming pools, right? So they came to me with the idea pre-COVID and I really felt like, you know, this could go either way. This, this, either this is a really stupid, and they went on Shark Tank, by the way, and the sharks told them, you know, this is the worst idea ever. 
And I, I wasn't sure. I, I really felt like, well, you know, it could be a terrible idea. But at the same time, you know, this kid that came to me with the idea is, you know, one of the most aggressive, persistent human beings I've ever, you know, I've ever met in my life. And I was just really impressed with his level of uh, grit and determination. So, so I invested and I, I joined the board and became a, became an advisor. And, you know, you fast forward, the company just exploded and, you know, they, they just raised a big round with some major investors and, you know, major funds that, previously wouldn't have looked at it. And, you know, now they got these big, big time guys coming in, you know, that's, that's a company that really could have gone either way. It's a, it's a, it's an idea that, you know, yeah, it could, it could be big and, or, or it could have been a total failure. And I think it was all about the, the founder and the team that delivered on that. So uh, that's what I look for. I look for really great, great people to invest in and, and you know, who have good ideas and have, have a vision. If you had one opportunity, if you could only do one sort of investment with the money you just took off the table, what would you do? You know, that's a good question. Obviously a tough question. I think, I mean, if I had to pick one thing, I think real estate is probably the smartest, safest bet. I think, it, you know, that they're not making more of it. And if you're smart about where you put your money and you, you know, you go, go into, uh, Obviously, you know, there are certain things that look like they have a very bright future, certain things that don't. I think if you're smart about how you do it and you buy it right, I think it's kind of a no-lose proposition. Obviously, there are definitely ways to lose money in real estate, but I think that real estate is probably the smartest, safest bet in turn, if, if you had to do one thing. You know, you get income, you get uh, appreciation in the asset, you get depreciation for tax purposes. So a lot of benefits to real estate. I come from a real estate family and they are furious that I did not go into it. Uh, To your point, the risk profile is just so vastly different and the amount of leverage you can get on the asset is likewise uh, outsized compared to most other asset options. If you were starting now, what would you do to earn a million dollars knowing what you know now? All the knowledge, none of the resources. <laughs> All the knowledge, none of the resources. That's a tough question. Um, you know, I could say I'd start another sunglasses business and just do it slightly differently. And I definitely wouldn't go into the custom clothing business at this point. You know, sunglasses business is crowded. I think I would, uh, I would probably look for a product or service that people are historically used to paying through the nose for and figure out, can I offer this product or this service at a significant discount without compromising quality? How do I get that message out? And I would probably try and, again, I, I, I would, my nature, what I would do is I would just try and be disruptive. I would try and identify that product or service and then go at it. It sounds very much like the resources would help, but it what you're bringing to is your experience that very much, you know, you're going to be able to create something so it's just the matter of finding that opportunity. Resources just could smooth out the edges and speed yeah. up the process. I think that's right. When did you fall in love with disruption? Because you seem to really understand that core concept. I don't know. I, I, I don't know that there was a specific moment that I was like, you know, I want to be a disruptor. I think as a teenager, you know, I had, I had cousins who 
wore beautiful clothing and spent a lot of money on that beautiful clothing. And my dad wouldn't let us, you know, he would not let us spend a lot of money on clothes. And I loved clothes. I was a clothes hound. My dad was not going to let us, you know, go drop that kind of money. So uh, when I was in school in Venice and I, I met a kid who had these gorgeous custom shirts made and he was getting them made in Hong Kong for a fraction of what you would normally expect to to pay that to me was like fascinating. Like, wow, I could, I can get these shirts made. And I did, I got these shirts made from his guy and I got them for like, you know, super inexpensive, a price that my dad had no issue with. And then I was walking around wearing these shirts and everyone who saw them thought I must've spent the fortune on them. I must, you know what I mean? And so that was like, that was, that was like, wow. Like you could, if you're, if you're resourceful, you can, you know, you can, probably do this in other industries too, you know? And so that's probably when I, when my eyes were first open to the power of disruption and of doing things differently, et cetera. Your wife, you had mentioned that she, you know, she has her own podcast. So why don't we plug it? But then also I would love to learn more about how you guys look at being dual entrepreneurs, you know, in your family. And what does that mean as you guys plan for the future? So my wife uh, has a podcast called From the Inside Out, and she's very focused on mental health and mental wellness. And she's got her master's in psychology, and she actually got her, her bachelor's and master's after we were married, after we had four children. So she aggressively pursued that. She is a fountain of knowledge, and she has she has a way of taking really complex concepts that perhaps someone who's not, who doesn't have a master's might have a hard time understanding and, and putting them into very easy to, you know, she, she breaks it down into something that's really easily digestible and easy to understand and also very practical. So um, that's what she focuses on. And she gives classes. She wrote a children's book called Sarah Dreamer, which became a bestseller children's book all about, you know, self-empowerment and believing in yourself um, so she's, she's a busy bee. I call her the queen bee. She's very, very busy. Uh, but she, she still manages to put out four course dinners on an almost nightly basis. And, um, she's, she's a chef extraordinaire. She's a mother extraordinaire, a wife extraordinaire, and she juggles it. Somehow she balances it and you can listen to her podcast to, to, to find out more about how she does it. But what I will say is one thing we found as a, now a, couple that's both constantly going at it, working, you know, constantly. When I say going at it, I mean, we're constantly trying to achieve more. We, we both, we both view uh, as parents, I think we both view our constantly working and um, trying to accomplish more. We see that as one of the best examples we could possibly give our children. Do as I do, not as I say. Uh, you know, you, you live by example and you, you, you want your kids to I want my kids to feel like, okay, my parents may have, you know, may have achieved financial success, but that doesn't mean you stop working. That doesn't mean you stop trying to accomplish things. That doesn't mean you stop trying to achieve the next level of success while at the same time demonstrating to them that, you know, family comes first, your relationship with your spouse comes first, your relationship with your children comes first. You know, yes, business is important and success is important, but there's a point where you, you put the phone down, you put your computer away and you focus on what's important. So we both have that same exact mindset. And I think we, uh, we've done a, 
we've done a good job really kind of conveying that to our children and making sure our children really understand that and, and, and get that on a daily basis. Since I have three kids and I think I'm insane, you have four. How old are your kids? Uh, six, my son is 16. Uh, our son is 16. And then we have uh, a 13-year-old girl, a 10-year-old girl, and a six-year-old. Okay. Yeah, I literally the same for your first three, 16, 14, 10. Yeah, there you go. And then we, so, so we, we, have, we, we have a very lively, very active household. Very cool. Yeah, I, I like how you're saying it because I read something recently, um, a few months ago, and this has been a lot of what I've been looking at is you don't have, a, don't focus on having a family business. You focus on building a business family around keeping the family together. So teaching the kids, like, look, you don't have to be involved in any of this, whatever, but you need to understand what this means, what it allows you, and why we do this to stay together and to keep each other together and support ourselves as we move forward with whatever insanity goes on out there in the world. Yeah, I think think one thing that, you know, one thing that my wife is teaching the kids and, and myself really is that it is possible to achieve, it certainly is an admirable goal. I don't think it's always achievable, but she certainly is achieving it. Where you can achieve financial success and at the same time um, do, do some real good. She, she's coaching, you know, one of her core competencies is, is ADD, ADHD coaching. So she coaches a lot of young, young people who have, you know, challenges of ADHD and she's coaching them on how to be more productive and how to accomplish their goals. And it's just amazing to see like these people, you know, the, the transformation that she helps engineer and she gets paid well for doing it. But at the same time, aside from getting paid well for doing it, you have these people that previously were not successful either in their careers or even in school. And all of a sudden there's this massive uh, change. And uh, that's something, that's also something really special that we get to see on a daily basis here. Social value. Yeah, that is pretty cool. That is wonderful. I, I want to talk a little bit more about that sort of social value because I know that's one, the giving back is something that I think doesn't get talked about as much as part of the entrepreneur's journey. And honestly, I think it might be one of the most important parts. Uh, I'm a big fan of the idea that all the money we make is only ours until we give it back. That's a definitely, you know, we're Orthodox Jews and Orthodox Jews have a very big focus on charitable giving. That's, you know, kind of the, in the Orthodox Jewish community, you can be the biggest business success, but if you don't give charity, you're a nobody. That's the way it works. So yeah, that's, that's definitely a big, a big piece of it. Uh, it's also, I think, very important in terms of constantly staying driven. You know, if you don't have charitable goals, you don't have that, that feeling that, hey, I want to make more money and give more money away and change to, and, and help, uh, and help create positive change in the world or my community. You can lose your motivation as a businessman or businesswoman very quickly because at a certain point, you make a certain amount of money and the difference more money is going to make in your lifestyle, you know, there's diminishing returns, right? At some point, it's like, well, I can do this. I can do that. Well, what more do I, you know what I mean? Like, what more do I need to really enjoy anything? But when it comes, if you're a big, if you're a big giver, if you give a lot of money away to charity, there's a never ending amount that you can give. 
It's just there's so many good causes out there and so many good things you want to get involved with, and you need more and more money to do that. So suddenly, there is no enough, you know? You got to keep going. And if you have a talent as an entrepreneur, uh, you almost have a responsibility to keep, to keep using that talent if you're going to use it for good. Couldn't agree more. I just wanted to add, I, I really do like that because as an intro, I mean, I try and get back and I've tried to incorporate things, but that positioning is just so logically true. It resonates. It makes sense. It's, it's hard to get to the first layer of like making money as an entrepreneur. It's, you know, so few of us go through that insanity, but once you do, it's like, okay, wow. Uh, what do we do now? Why do we do now? But positioning it through your journey as an entrepreneur because you can, and then therefore you should, it feeds it. That, that's pretty powerful. I like that. Yeah, well, that, that, that concept isn't my own. Um, we, we are, as I mentioned, we're Orthodox Jews, and we, we belong to a... We belong to a Hasidic group called um, uh, Chabad Lubavitch, and the the Lubavitch Rebbe, who um, you know, of blessed memory, uh, who is our you know spiritual leader and still is. So, someone came to him. I just saw a video a couple of days ago. Someone sent this to me. Uh, someone came to him and said to him, "You know, Rebbe, I just sold my business, made a lot of money. We have an opportunity to actually buy the business back." because the people that bought it from us didn't do a great job with it, kind of a classic story. And we can make a bunch more money buying it back and rebuilding it. And I want to ask the Rebbe when, he, his question was, when is enough enough? And, you know, the Rebbe, this is a spiritual leader, right? And he, this guy's coming to talk about business. And the Rebbe said to him, um, as many people did, by the way, the Rebbe said to him, um, you have a talent as a businessman. You have a talent, Right. You have, that's a God-given talent. You have to use that talent. It's never enough. You have to use that talent because that talent enables you to give and to do so much good in the world. And you have no right to sit back and just not use that God-given talent for good. You have no right to do that. It's a God-given talent and you have an obligation to do something good with it. And I believe that's true of, 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 you know, if someone has, if someone is an artist and has, you know, God has given them an amazing talent as an artist and they can beautify the world and bring light to people's lives through their art, they have an obligation to do so. Same thing with any talent that you're given. Thank you for coming on today and sharing all of this awesome information. I know we've got several future episodes planned to have you back and I can't wait to dig in more on some of these concepts around building an entrepreneurial legacy and family. Where can the audience find you? Thanks for having me. In general, I'm not really public. I'm, you know, I'm on Instagram and Facebook. I'm private on both, but you'll read about my next business or my next venture. But purveyrevo.com is our company website. And uh, I'm sure we'll have, you know, I'm sure I'll have more stuff coming out here in the future. Yeah. And that is linked in the show notes, everyone. Go get yourself some new glasses. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. You can find more information about Simply and David's other efforts in the show notes, along with the best links to connect with him below. This episode of Beyond Eight Figures is over, but your journey as an entrepreneur continues. So if we can help you with anything, please just let us know. And if you like this episode, please share it with someone who might learn from it. Until next time, keep growing and find the joy in your journey. 
This is AJ, and I'll be talking to you soon. Bye-bye.